0: Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. And today, I'm excited to have in the studio Joe Elliott of Def Leppard. Hi, hey Brian. How oh are you? I'm good, man. You're good, but you you just had rotator cuff surgery. Yes. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a flesh wound. <laughs> <Yeah, right. laughs> no big deal. But other than that, you're going strong. You guys have a, a tour coming with Journey. Now, you've gone on tour with Journey before they obviously don't have their original lead singer. What's it like to see them with this young guy that replaced Steve Perry? What, what do you make of that as as someone who's stuck around so long as the original lead singer?
1: Well, I think when you have a band that's been around for 30, 40 years or whatever it is, it's kind of very fortunate if you can keep the same lineup together. You know, I'm thinking of a band like, say, U2 or something like that. We couldn't do it. Um, We lost Pete Willis during the recording sessions of Pyromania, and Steve Clark passed away in 91. Um, The Rolling Stones have even lost people along the way, you know. Um, I try not to pass judgment because it's not necessarily the fault of the organization if somebody decides to leave or they get fired or whatever. And just because one person leaves, should an entire band have to shut down? I I have been... um, I commented briefly about three weeks ago and people picked up on it as though it was a negative but he wasn't meant to be about you know I I got asked about the Brian Johnson situation and I just said look you know we would have managed it differently. Angus has got to do whatever Angus has got to do. I I think Axel Rose did a very good job with ACDC. Brian's my friend so of course I'm going to go to bat for him but the fact that he had a bit of a hearing problem and they just decided to, like, well, okay, well, we're just going to carry on without you then. And we stuck around for Rick Allen. It's not the way we would have done things. It wasn't really meant as a criticism. It was more an observation. But um, I've, I've seen Journey with a New Guy, with Arnell, and he's a fantastic singer. I mean, yeah. there's no doubt about it. And if the fact is that if if Steve Perry doesn't want to do it anymore, then somebody else has got to. You know, it's like a football team to a point
0: and the quarterback quits or you get rid of him, you've got to get a new one. At the same time, if you caught your bandmates looking at, you know, cover band uh, demo videos, you might want to yeah, I, I would shut be, that
1: down. I might, I might be a little concerned about that.
0: <laughs> <you know. laughs> it marks the... Uh, 10th anniversary this year believe it or not of when you guys met up with a very young Taylor Swift for an episode of CMT Crossroads and I, I was re-watching that and it's incredible like you, you're singing her song Love Story uh-huh. uh, which has some you know lyrics that aren't maybe your type of lyrics but you're really putting your heart into it sounds great in fact let's let's hear that right now On the balcony, air see the light see the
1: body the body.
0: Your way through the crowd and say hello. But, did I know. but what are your memories of that session 10 years ago? And what signs did you see that this young woman was going to basically conquer the world? Well, she
1: was already pretty big. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the conquering the world was something that was either going to happen or wasn't. And, and in fairness, she's she really did go out full on, full bore and, like, conquer the world. And and good luck to her for doing that, you know. Um, but The whole thing came together because somebody walked into our dressing room with a laptop and facing outwards, if you like, showing us, have you read this? And we went, read what? You know, I couldn't see what it was. And it's like, uh, it's Taylor Swift. She's doing this interview, and she said there was only one band that she would ever do a show like Crossroads with, and it was Def Leppard. And we went wow i said well okay get in touch with her see what she thinks you know and lo and behold a couple of months go by and all of a sudden we're we're doing this show you know and after that it's like well this is interesting because we've always been that you know put noses out a joint kind of band i yeah. love the idea of doing something that's gonna either piss people off Or they go, good for you for doing something different because you're going to do collaborations. I don't see the point in us doing a song with Bon Jovi. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I prefer (laughs) the idea of John doing a song with like Tom Waits and us doing something with like Loudon Wainwright III or Leonard Cohen or somebody completely off the wall. Elvis Costello and Motorhead. Can you imagine what that would sound like? You know?
0: I I wish. Yeah, that'd be awesome.
1: So it's like the fact that we got, you know, we got hooked in with Taylor was great you know she was 17 years old we were more than willing to do this we got a new record just out it was a bit of fun it was a four day project it was two days of rehearsals two shows and everybody did their homework at home so we turned up knowing all the chords knowing all the lyrics and um, they weren't really Im- any difficulties there was a couple of moments where we sat down me and Taylor sat down she says I can't sing that line because it was a bit too risque and sugar and stuff like that. so we just we'd swap things around and the fact that I was actually singing from the male point of view in some of her stuff like in Love Story as you say I mean I'm not going to sing something half-hearted I'm going to give it my all because it doesn't matter it's a, it's a one-off project and you've got to sell yourself in the right light so it makes no difference to me whether it's a Ramon song or it's Taylor Swift I'm going to do it the best I can you know fair enough
0: wow. yes she, yeah. She's a veteran now This yeah. is how
1: fast things move So what move the hell in- does that make me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God almighty A
0: legend maybe yeah, I don't know right. So we sometimes do a thing on this show uh, We're calling it Rockstars React Where we play something very current from the pop charts And, and get your thoughts if you don't mind uh, We want to play a song by Drake Called God's Plan that literally just came out And just what you think If you don't mind I've been moving calm
1: do no trouble with me Trying to keep it peaceful is a struggle for me I'm gonna Where's the hook? Where's the hook, dude? It's kinda you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of an updated version of watching something from TV in like nineteen seventy one, like a Richie Havens or something mm. like that, where whereas Richie would sit on a stool, play the guitar, sing and sweat, and make a bit more of an effort to perform and put melody and, and, and heart and soul into it. Whereas a lot of the rap stuff to me, it's just typewriter. Mm. You know, they, they've okay, they've got some cool l- lyrical rhymes, or they actually, with a lot of rap, they, they don't literally rhyme maybe and baby. They, they take a bit more of an artistic license. As long as it's close to a rhyme, they, they'll use it. There's less limitations that way. But um, I find the, the lack of melody somewhat stifling in my mind, and it's nothing that I would certainly try and listen to again.
0: At the same time, during hysteria and, you know, we were going to get to it, but pour some sugar on me was in some ways directly influenced by the rap at the time. Yeah, but that? listen to
1: the difference between <laughs> that and the Drake song. Mm. You know, it was more a case of, like, the attitude that came out of people like the Beastie Boys and Run DMC was way more rock than that will ever be. The fact is that it had meter and it had bounce and it had melody and it had drive. And, you know, when you hear things like um, you've got to fight for your right to party, in many respects, it's just like a poor man's ACDC. And you got Run DMC, who they hook up with... Aerosmith, and basically sounded like a black Aerosmith, if you like. You know, it was the meter was literally lifted straight off Stephen Tyler. So did Stephen Tyler invent rap? Debbie Harry was doing it before rap became really popular you know i mean it was underground in right. new york but she Before was inspired the, by the underground indeed, rappers but in you know America. if you're yeah. from the uk like i was we didn't know that yeah there was right. no internet <laughs> back then so if there was something going on in a park in new york or in in queens or you know wherever we wouldn't know that And the first thing we hear is rapture and it's like oh this is different you know so the way things spread these days is a lot easier for the world to grasp what it is but everything was it was detected by accident or it took months and months for it to get
0: across to certain areas of the world. One of the things that I think made your hits so big and so interesting and so great is your openness to a lot of different kinds of music especially in the 80s you guys were listening to like Lionel Richie and Thriller was an influence on hysteria and how did all that work for you? Just like taking in all these non-rock influences. We've
1: always been fans of just great music. Sure. We would never limit ourselves to just Listening to rock then you just sound like a rock band, you know what I mean, we wanted to be like Queen were whereas like you can say with Queen they were a rock band with a bit of vaudeville and a little bit of operatic thrown in but it was still essentially rock we as as individuals and, and as a collective would readily admit in front of the entire world to being fans of everything from the ramones and the pistols and the clash of that kind of you know aggressive less musicianship kind of rock to fans of like utopia uh, queen steely dan and the more musician type of rock and then people like peter gabriel kate bush Tom Waits, uh, Lionel Richie, Michael Jackson, just because they made great records, good enough for Eddie Van Halen to play on. If it's a great song, you just go, that's a great song, you know, I mean, we were in a discotheque in Amsterdam in 1986 when we heard State of Shock by Jagger and, and Jackson. And we saw how it didn't empty the dance floor, but it rocked. And that's pretty much inspired Excitable off hysteria just the reaction of people like well you know you can mix it up we didn't want to sound like saxon we didn't want to sound like maiden we didn't want to sound like duran duran we didn't want to sound like depeche mode but if you put the lot into a bucket there is an interlink between any one of them bands as much as maiden might not agree there's a there's a band from sheffield called abc And their second album, they had this album called Beauty Stab. And in many respects, it's a very, very good rock album, but it's ABC. There's some big guitars on it, huge drums, great melodies. It's just a really good pop record. I thought that the Human League, another band from Sheffield, Martin Russian was their producer. And then when they did Don't You Want Me Baby, you could tell why it was a hit you didn't have to like it but you could tell why it was a hit same thing with like a band like depeche mode i've listened to depeche mode for 20 odd years they're a rock band without a guitar they're everything about them their arrangements the look they in fact they bring, they did eventually bring guitar in but even their keyboards were well they were hardcore sounding and they were playing like rock riffs on a keyboard nine inch nails similar kind of thing so if it's a good song It gets logged in our DNA in the plus department. And even if all we ever do is tell people we think it's great, not lift things from it, it, that's a good thing. But we've always been influenced by everything from pure pop to downright hardcore rock. Um, We would never want to be one or the other, but take the ingredients for sure. And that's how you make your own pie, by stealing ingredients from other people's recipes. And, you know sell hundred million records probably that was a nice accident all we ever really wanted to do was make a record that we would go out and buy ourselves and we we were one of the few bands from that area that actually would readily admit to liking things that journalists and fans may question because a lot of people are scared to admit their influences in case it upsets the apple cart with their audience jonesy uh, from the Pistols, and how he likes, you know, John Lydon would be like, going, We hate bands like Boston and Journey and all this stuff. And he says, I'd quietly be stood at the side of them like, going, well, Actually, I don't. I think they're really good, you mm. know. But, you know, it wouldn't have done them any good to admit it. And I'd read all these articles in, in magazines and stuff. And I remember thinking, should we ever get to the position where. I'm asked that question. I'm not going to deny myself. So if somebody says, what do you think of Michael Jackson? Or what do you think of Janet Jackson? Or what do you think of Paula Abdul?
0: If I, you know, if, if I, hey, I like the song, I like the song. You know. Fair enough. So you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyde, and I'm in the studio right now with Joe Elliott from Def Leppard, and we'll be right back with a lot more. wanted to talk a little bit about your live show. You are going on tour, as we mentioned, with Journey this year, and uh, you haven't decided on the set list. Imagine, God, no. God, no. How different do you imagine it's going to be from the the last set list that you went out with?
1: Well, it's not going to be massively different because yeah. the thing about a, a... It's like Paul McCartney, you know, or the Rolling Stones. There are certain songs. Got to play them. And I hate saying you have to play them because it sounds like a kind of a negative. You want to play them. I've never understood the logic behind not wanting to play your hits because you're bored of it, thinking that your crowd are, um, or changing them up so that they're unrecognizable. You don't have the threshold to live with the fact that you've written this amazing song that you've now become bored with or something. I don't buy into that. You know, If you can't handle that responsibility of writing a hit, then don't write one. Uh, that would be my theory so yeah you know are we not going to play sugar of course we are and photograph and rock of ages and fooling and there's there's the a-listers which as i say you can't get out the building alive if you don't play (laughs) and then there's the b-listers which are the important album tracks a fooling or uh bring on the heartbreak switch six two five stuff like that and then there's the c c-list which is songs off your latest album deep cuts they're the ones that you can intermingle and switch and change and maybe do a different one every night um, or a different one every tour, depending on what your mood is. That is something that we'll start getting into maybe April time. I mean, we live all over the world, man. We're all over the place. But that's the great thing about communication these days you just send out this is my idea for a set list and then everybody will go okay I'm not bothered about that one but you'll come within one day of getting 85% of what we should be playing right and then you're just arguing out the other 15%
0: and that normally just falls into place during rehearsals I did have your your last set list, and uh, I wanted to talk about some of the songs from it. As as you said, many of them will return this time. But you've been starting off shows for a while with Let's Go from your most recent album. Yeah, well, because it's our
1: most recent album, we always thought the best way to get a show off the road is playing a new song, because... Most people are just excited to see the house lights go down. And as a fan of music that's been to thousands of shows, people are more likely to remember the end than the front. Even though you can have an incredible, spectacular intro, your hardcore fans are going to remember it. But anybody that's sitting in the back, because they they know Sugar and Photograph, they're just waiting for those songs. So they're kind of like, you know, weekend warrior fans, if you like. Sure. They ain't going to really care what you open with. You can't really justify trying to play to the collective total you've got to make a, a grandstanding decision on your own artistic temperament if you like so it's like look we're promoting a new record if certain people don't get the fact that we're going to play new music then that's when they go and buy a beer and then, which happens to everybody i remember I saw this great radio broadcast of elton john playing live for the bbc about 10 years ago And he actually said, I am now about to mutter those words that everybody doesn't want me to mutter. Here's a song from my new album. (laughs) And it's just one of those things that legacy artists have to deal with is people come to massive arenas not to hear your new songs. But we've always taken our blueprint, if you like, off the back of a Stones bootleg. You know, you look at the Stones and they'll open with a new one or maybe they'll open with Start Me Up and then play a new one second and they'll go 30 minutes and they'll play another new one. And then the thing in between is jumping, Jack Flash, Give Me Shelter, Carlos, Got What You Want, New Song, Hit, 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 New Song, and that's what we'll try and do on the last tour. We we opened it with Let's Go. I think we did Dangerous Fourth, and then we did Man Enough about middle set just after rock on which is a kind of a down part of the set so that it can come back up again it's all dynamics and it's like i think your audience will always indulge you three minutes of something they're not over familiar with as long as you don't hit them with 23 minutes of it because that's when they really start to go i didn't come here to hear this
0: i'll listen to it at home and then when i get used to it then i'll hear it live if it's a hit you know second you're playing animal from hysteria Mm -hmm. um and it's I think, the single most difficult to record on, on Hysteria.
1: Oh, I don't know about that, It was just, but it's the one that made went through the most metamorphosis. When we wrote the song, it had a completely different backing track, but the melody worked over the original backing track, and we put the song together, and, you know, we'd move on to work on other songs, and we'd come back to this one, and like a year into this project, in which we'd started <laughs> with Steinman and Scrapped, and then we worked with Nigel Green, Mudd's engineer, and we then when Muck came back onto the project... Bit by bit, we'd start replacing all the stuff that we thought we were keeping. And we got to this song a year after we'd first put it together. And we all just came to the conclusion that it was nearly a good song. There's something not right about it. And the backing track just sounded dated. What do you do in those situations? Well, you do what you can in the studio, which is leave the drums and the vocal up. And we played it. And Moad, Steve, Sav and Phil sit down and go, right, work something out to fit because this, we're keeping this this vocal. This is a great vocal. It's a good melody. And they came out with this whole new backing track behind it. It's a really bu- bizarre way of working. It gave us another little area within that album that made it different. It's not all just recorded the same way. All these songs are individual projects by themselves, almost, you know. So it wasn't difficult. It was just
0: the route that we got to, to the finished song was bizarre. Yeah, it's well, a great song. Let's hear Animal for a second. Now, uh, the next song you were playing is uh, Let It Go, which has, uh, you know, it's a great early vocal performance. How hard is it to match the young you on stage? Well, listen to the version I sang on Live in Detroit, and it's not a million
1: miles from the original um, because I've done it so many times that your throat gets into a shape. It's not like, I don't know how this one works or you can't quite get there. It's in a decent key for me, you know. Some of the songs are harder to sing than others. Let It Go is not particularly difficult. Um, it's fun to play. Lyrically, It's I've gone through love and hate relationships with yeah, it. Yeah, I was
0: going to ask about that. So you get ready for the big C.
1: You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't even know what that means anymore. Because <laughs> it didn't represent what it means now. We were 21 years old, maybe, when that song got written. I'm 58. You know, I mean, I, I'm a different person. But when I was in my 30s, I really had a problem singing it. And then as I got older, I realized that the third person factor can come into this. And then it's just it's just represents an earlier part of your career. So it's like if Robert Plant has a problem with a certain lyric from when he was eighteen, we don't. And once he gets his head around the fact that we don't, then he doesn't. And that's what I kinda of went through with that song. So there was you realise that you're kind of acting you're playing the role as an actor. You don't have to be a mass murderer to play one. You know? (laughs) And you don't... With certain songs, you don't have to believe every single word of the lyric. But at the same time, you can't change it because... That's what people want. I mean, maybe, yeah, there are some artists that will do that, and there's people like Bob Dylan will turn a song inside out. But with us, we've never been that kind of band. We never will be. Um, and I'm very comfortable with that song now because it always sounds good when we play it.
0: Another new track, uh, Dangerous, and then "Fooling" from Pyromania, one of, one of my favorites. What do you remember about that one coming together and, and also about learning to play it live with all those vocal layers?
1: I don't remember much about writing "Fooling," to be quite honest. The re- only thing I remember about "Fooling" is I suggested the semitone change-up for the bridge when it goes into the oh i yeah. just gotta know and then committee lyric writing on that particular song i think it was me and Mo- mostly a me, Mo- and sav were just throwing ideas around off sheets of paper um fooling bit the stuttering thing i think that came up because I, seriously i think we'd just literally been talking about the who maybe we were talking about backman turner overdrive i don't know there was some connection to previous stuttering songs and it just made it's like you know what that would really work on this one because instead of singing five four words five syllables we just go for a one word and three stutters. It was just a different approach. That's about as much as I remember about the writing of it. It sounds like the intro riff sounds like it's either a Sav or a Clark lick. As for the rest of it, the is anybody out there section sounds like Sav. That's the kind of thing he used to write a lot. On the guitar but I genuinely don't remember but um, when it comes to the vocals we'd sing them all for the record and we were always about making the record and let's to be damned with the live version you know we never wanted to limit ourselves by going to can't do that otherwise you'd have had no bow and in Rhapsody you know I mean you just don't limit yourselves by saying we can't do it live when you get to the chorus is anybody out there that there goes on forever on the record but live we do it really short, purely because we need to get the breath to sing the next bit, you know. And it's really high up, and you've already been singing a ton of stuff. And just shortening it is no big deal. We sing the harmonies, and they're right. The fact that the song's a little different in length vocally, then it doesn't really make any difference. The important thing is the lead vocal sound still works and all the guitar parts are there the harmonies are are there or thereabouts and trust me our guys are they're great harmonious singers all three of them Um, we took Rick off the job once he lost his arm so he could just concentrate on the drums but since Vivian joined the the vocals really went up a notch so between him, Sav and Phil there's some great singing going off and between the four of us we really work all the parts out because on a lot of these songs I actually sing the harmonies I don't sing the lead vocal Oh, I'm the one that's doing the...
0: Anybody out there?
1: That's me. Nobody else can hit you that. Me and Vivian sometimes. And then Sav, or me and Sav will do that one, and Vivian and Phil sing the lower
0: part. I sing the high harmony I'm bringing on the heartbreak because nobody else will be able to do it. Love Bites, another hysteria classic. Was the deep voice on the studio version, was that possibly inspired by Vincent Price on the Thriller title track? No, not at all. No, no. Okay. no, no. <laughs> that was that was us messing around
1: with either a synclavia or a Fairlight computer, which had just kind of you know, they just developed these things and they were getting them into the studio. We like, said, oh, we've got to try one of those. We spent so much time on Hysteria on things that never made the record. I think um, Bruce Dickinson has just released a biography called, Look, what does that button do? <laughs> and we said that every day in the studio when we were working with Mott. Can we turn this backwards, Mott? Yeah, just hit the button that says reverse. And that's why you get all those noises at the beginning of, like, Rocket. The the backward thing, I think, is we're fighting for the gods of war, just turned backwards and flanged. And we did that in so many different sections of songs. Guitar parts, drums... Backward snares, backward vocals, backward everything. Nothing to do with Satan, by the way. Just, just a sync <laughs> clavier or a fair like. But, um, no, the deep voice got nothing to do with Vincent Price. It was just, um, it was just messing around and taking it down an octave by putting the vocal into a keyboard. So when you play a C chord, you get it in regular pitch and you hit it on the lower C and you get it down an octave. You hit it on the high you get it sound like Mickey Mouse. Yeah. So you could find a space in between and get some really weird sounds going on was the word power ballad no and i hate it it's just nonsense because it was just a slow song to is when you when you hear the word ballad and rock together it just draws so many negatives but it's like well then rain song and so is the long and winding road and so is angie you know and so is shangri-la almost by the kinks or you know i mean it's it's just a silly it's just a slow song it's not a ballad But a ballad is, it's just been, over the years, it's just become such a negative, we just say it's a slow song because it's a great, it's it's our only ever number one in the US. So it's not like it's it's something we're not proud of. It's just a great song. It just happens to be slow,
0: you know? Yeah. I think everyone, hopefully now in uh, 2018, everyone's past that, I would hope, you know? Yeah, you'd like to
1: think so, but they still keep going on about the mullet as well, you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> or the ripped jeans. But I mean, the thing is, they did make an impression. Yeah. You know? And I've never had to worry about the mullet because, to be quite honest, Bono's and Bowie's
0: were way worse than mine. <laughs> Armageddon, it, another hysteria song. Anything stick out in your memory about that song in the studio? Yeah, that one went through many
1: changes. When we first started out with that song, I remember we were doing it in a, we were all living in a rented house in Booterstown in Dublin. And Sav came in with this real Neanderthal guitar part. And it was literally just like, ah, ah, ah. And it was that for months. And eventually, Steve, I think, said, you know, we need to sex this bit up. And it wants to sound like T Rex. And he started playing the beginning bit. So it sounded more like, get it on, you know. Uh, well, the verse part did it right. at least. But you got da down, 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 da this is starting to take shape, you know. So it, it was a case of like we had the guts of a song, but we just keep trying to improve it all the time. The actual Neanderthal bit that Sav did would have worked as a different song. It was right. great. We may even use it again in the future. <laughs> Who knows, <laughs> you know, but um, it turned into a much more up to date song. Even though we were referencing 71, somehow it had jumped enough time for that to be uber cool again. Whereas maybe five years earlier, referencing T-Rex wouldn't have been cool. You know things go around in circles Circles, like that way? It's like it's not cool to listen to the 80s, but then it's cool again. Like the 70s sucked in the 90s, (laughs) and now they're cool again, you know, and the 60s sucked in the 80s, and that's the way it works, you know. One day, the 80s will be cool again. So we we got the song on the go, and then we got to the chorus bit, and we couldn't think of anything to sing. And I guess, I don't know what we'd been doing, watching MTV and, and... zz top had been on and we just started singing give me all your loving in this space just until we came up with some other lyrics but the problem with doing that is when you live with it for three or four weeks you can't unscramble an egg right you know and we said yeah I, look with the greatest of respect the zZ here who you know wouldn't be too happy that we're doing this it actually sounds really good yeah and we're changing it for the sake of changing it just because. I mean, it's not like they don't own the, the rights to those words. Give me all your love. in that was even different to theirs. But it was the fact is, it was a marker that we ended up leaving in place because we just couldn't
0: think of anything any better. Jumping ahead a little bit, uh, two steps behind. Uh, obviously, there's an acoustic version, an electric version. You do the acoustic version. We've never done the electric version. In fact,
1: the electric version was just a demo um, that I wrote in '89. And when we came to doing the Euphoria album, we had so many slow songs. We had Love and Hate Collide, which came out eventually six years later on Vault. We had Have You Ever Needed Someone So Bad? We had Tonight. We had Two Steps Behind. And it's like, well, pick two. And um, cut to finishing the album off, it was kind of fashionable in the day in 92 93 to release cd singles with three bonus tracks and it's like well we just finished a 10 track record that you consider maybe there's six singles so now we have to come up with 18 more songs okay so we went through the vaults and we found a few things and um first thing we did was record only after dark uh as as a kind of a, a helping hand for mick ronson who was going through cancer treatment and didn't have any money so if figured record one of his songs he can get the royalties for that so that was the first b-side we did and then we started to like go through the stuff that we elbowed off uh, of other records um and two steps behind it was phil Collins who said look we, we're running out of time let's just do it on acoustics hmm. let's just do an acoustic version so we banged it out in like 30 minutes or something like that I put a vocal on it, and there it was, and it went out as a B-side, and it was a B-side for a year. And then one day, we got a phone call from the Powers That Be that were making this movie called Last Action Hero, and they said, we're looking for a Def Leppard song, but we want something that's not really that well known. And we were just in the the process of putting together the Retroactive album, which was going to feature a lot of these B-sides and stuff uh, in remixed form. So we sent them the cassette of all the tracks that were going to go on retroactive and said, well, look, see if there's anything on here that you like. And Michael Kamen was a musical director. And um, he didn't really hear anything until he came into work after a long weekend. And one of his secretaries was whistling this song, which obviously registered in his mind. And he says, what is that that you're seeing? She says, oh, it's one of those songs off the Leopard cassette. Put it on again. And what passed him by on first listen he listened to it he went oh yeah that'll work and then he and it was two sets behind and he he phoned us up and he says um i i've actually i have <laughs> just fallen in love with your song two Steps behind can i put a string arrangement on it and we're like going oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> of course you can please you know be, my, be our guest and lo and behold um the thing came out on columbia records and went top 10 yeah they went number one in France and number one in South Africa and number two in Canada and all of a sudden this song that seriously Phil hadn't said oh let's just do it acoustically it wouldn't have
0: got done you know happy accidents you gotta love them and let's hear the uh, version of Two Steps Behind with the strings mm-hmm. can run but you can never hide from the shadow that's creeping and uh, Rocket we were talking about before I mean there's a lot of Mutt went crazy with studio effects and that one breakdown section. There's a lot of cool stuff going on in there. I think some of that he did without you guys knowing that it was going to be in the song, right? No, um, they all knew it was, it was only
1: me that did it. Ah, okay. Th- that was a mad thing. When you listen to Rocket and after all the stories that we tell about Hysteria, you'd think that that whole middle section, which was like our version, uh, it was our attempt at a 21st century version of Whole Lot of Love. It was a whole breakdown section, but instead of just orgasmic sounds and a hi-hat pedal, we wanted it to be all this mad percussive stuff. And it sounds like it should have taken forever, you know. I went into Amsterdam to buy a newspaper, (laughs) 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 and I came back, and it was done. I'm like, you've got to come and listen to this. And all it was is that there's this low-pulsing vocal thing, which, again, is something else, I don't know what, turned around backwards and played uh in a sequence and put into a sequencer and then we put all these guitar noises over the top we then sang some guitar noises to shadow um to sh- we did sang some bits to shadow the guitar noises and um again put some backward stuff in there and then by then we were all throwing ideas in because i it was only the pulsating low monk voices i like to call it <laughs> that i wasn't there for and then we we're all like going well we should try Try that phrase and turn it around backwards, and we would do that, you know. And it's like some of them worked, and some. didn't. we just keep going at it until we got stuff that really did work. Um, but that was a fantastic song to put together. That really was a brilliant team effort. I, I was, um, I used to frequent a sauna across the road from the hotel. Um, it's clean, but. Um, full of ladies it was very very fun i was having a drink with one of the ladies um that had been in the sauna afterwards and she invited me back to her barge she lived on a boat and she had a tape of burundi black and it was playing in the background while we were having a drink and i couldn't concentrate on anything she was saying i was listening to this drums i went and it's this like tribal african drumming thing that's like 20 30 drummers and it just had that collective massive sound that you hear every day these days in Hollywood movies you know but back then it was pretty unusual you know and this song had been a minor hit in England about 1971 so that was playing on my mind so I've heard this before and I remember thinking and I said to her can I borrow that tape and I took it back to my hotel room and made a drum loop out of part of it and then I started coming up with chord sequences and I played it to the guys and they went cool so we started working a song into it and um the chorus was kind of there and uh then they started writing all these bits for it but it was obviously going to be a very vocal song because if you had to listen to it there's barely any guitars in it when the voices are singing away so we had the intro and then we dropped the guitars out and then um we bring them back in for the bridge and then they're very clever in the chorus because on certain parts of the chorus, there's no guitar. It's just a bass hitting the note, a bit like the beginning of Pinball Wizard. You think there's this huge guitar mm. crash. It's just Entwistle. whistle. There is no uh, there's no Townsend on it. And we do that on one of the the hits on on the Rocket chorus. And then it came to like, okay, we've got a good uh, we've got a good arrangement for the music here. What where are we going to go with this? And we had Rocket. We had the phrase Rocket, and it's like that sounded pretty cool. He said, but, you know, Rocket what? What? Is it going to do this to is going to be like a Bowie song about space? And I don't remember which one of us, could have been me, could have been Rick, suggested that we use the song as a vehicle. Like, the Rocket is the vehicle of a journey through our youth. So it became a list, what we call a list song. You remember, there used to be that song, um, Life is a Rock, and all they did is name every band in the world, you know, including Mot the Hoople, which I was pretty c- cool. Billy Joel did it with... Um, we didn't start the fire that's yeah. the one yeah. yeah and it was that kind of vibe in fact i think we did it before he did but um <laughs> i can't remember and it was like okay so did, where yeah. are we going to go with this and we just started name dropping certain characters out of rock and roll whether we liked them or not wasn't relevant phonetically they had to work so benny and the jets killer queen uh gene genie you know um even jet black it was just the drummer from the stranglers you know as far as we were concerned there's probably an, an american version of jet black somewhere but he was the stranglers you now and then of course he got to the chorus and it was a no-brainer to nick lou reed yeah so evolving. you know you got rocket and it's satellite of love it's like oh that's just perfect
0: thank you lou you know so let's hear that song Next up is bringing on the heartbreak. And what I was wondering about that is when a monster chorus like that... What's it like to have realized you just wrote a chorus that's so arena-shaking and so unforgettable? It is, well, yeah,
1: you put it like that, yeah. I mean, I, it's not like we wake up every day going, oh, brand new day. Wow, that chorus in heartbreak's awesome. You know, I mean, it's just <laughs> nothing that you think about. It's You did it at the time, and then you live with it for the rest of your life. It's a decision you made, and it was a great decision, you know. Um, the way that song started out, we wrote that song in a paper factory in Drumfield, just on the outskirts of sheffield sometime between the on through the night tour and and i was going into the studio to record the album it was the intro guitar part was pete willis and the rest of the song the whole way through the rest of the song the original demo was steve clark um when we got into the uh pre-production room in london with mutt we didn't change it up too much and the intro is the same the verse jangle is the same um the bridge is the same. Then we we but we didn't have a chorus. The bridge was our chorus. Mot said it needs a bigger section, mm. and we between him and us we came up with the, with a chorus. Now, originally the song was called a certain heartache or something like that, and the melody is exactly the same, and the the bit and the the bridge where I actually sing, you know, you bring it on the heartbreak, you are taking all the best of me was actually exactly as it was on the demo, and it was Mot who suggested that we said. Singing, you know, bring a certain heartache. He says, it's nearly good, but not great. He says, how about bring in on the heartbreak? Mm. So we just changed that phrase to that. And then it just became obvious, like, it should also be the chorus.
0: Right. So we kind of preempt the chorus with that lyric. Um, Because, that yeah, that's not a big enough sentiment to match that melody. No, no, absolutely not. bring a certain heartache. No, it it was very introspective.
1: And it was very bunch of kids that kind of were nearly good we were we were the unpolished diamond Milt Lang saw something in us that we knew it was there but we didn't know how to bring it to the surface and he did, having worked with Foreigner and and A C D C and the Boomtown Rats and all the little known bands like the Motors and Supercharge and Graham Parker and the Rumour. He'd been doing all this for years and we trusted him because he'd done Back in Black for Christ's sake. Right. You know, and I went to hell and Foreigner Four. So he knew how to make a s you know, a song sound great. And he's always been the sixth guy. Muck can sing, he can play, and he can write. So we would sit around, and we wouldn't alienate him from those sessions, because why would you when the guy's that good? So, yeah, some of the things that we've written, he actually wrote, you know. Um, it was a six-man team, and that's the way we did it, you know. But that, that song became very anthemic. You know, it was a huge, big deal. We knew it was the song on High and Dry when it came to, like... Uh, what's the phrase crossover we knew it was going to reach out more than just the songs like High and Dry would reach or Let It Go or Hit and Run this one was going to appeal to a bigger audience and Mutt knew that because it's this one song out of all ten on that album that he really worked a lot more time on the rest of the stuff was just not banged out but it was he caught the energy with that song he he god he made me sing that thing over and over until i got it sounding the way that he thought it needed to sound which was beyond my capabilities to think at the time when i was 21 22 years old i wasn't i wasn't as aware then as i obviously would become five or six years later on how you need to keep further in yourself and we all work better under order it's a fact you know and and we learned that pretty quickly working with Mutt. and then of course you know it comes to the end of the song and we had this thing and for the longest time Mutt wanted me to write lyrics and i said no way that is not a lyric song it's an instrumental and then what we can do with this is we can very cleverly turn this into the tag that layla was and like you know like like almost the way that Freebird is after the last lyric um or stairway to heaven or any of these songs that have got big long endings and eventually muck came around to the idea and he went okay fine he just thought i was being lazy and i couldn't be bothered to write lyrics but the melody on the guitar was just so brilliant i just couldn't see how we'd be cluttering it up to sing on that and i really stuck my heels in and went nah sorry this is an instrumental. And I'm glad we did make that decision because everybody actually agreed eventually. But, you know, it's it's a staple now. And because there's circumstances beyond our control, as in Steve Clark passing away, every night it becomes kind of like a tribute to
0: Steve, which is a really cool thing to be able to do. This has been Rolling Stone Music Now. We were lucky enough to have Elliott in the studio. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. And we'll be seeing you on tour this year with Journey. Can't wait. We'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's volume, channel 106. In the meantime, please download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.